This is a crowd podcast. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This is the leadership podcast where I swap stories and compare notes with some of the biggest names in sport. And today's guest is an all-time rugby great, World Cup winner and former All Blacks captain, Kieran Reid. Holding on to that kind of proper role of captain, it did change your life in different ways. I didn't quite realise how heavy the weight was going to feel when I first took over. Better people make better All Blacks. It's the same as no dickhead. You're here to fit in. It's the team first mentality. You can be an individual and be yourself, but you can't be a dick really. You know, I'd certainly have tears as soon as I got back to the shed. Tough day, man. Definitely one of the hardest days as a, as a captain. Hi everyone, and thanks again for listening to Captains. After speaking to Sir Ben Ainsley last week, we are back on dry land for this episode with an old rival of mine, former New Zealand captain, Kieran Reid. Growing up, the All Blacks were the team to be. Amazing players, almost mythical status. I played against them nine times, only winning once. Me and Kieran shared a pretty famous moment in rugby history. We famously drew the Lions series as captains in 2017. And there's some really nice photos of us lifting the trophy together. We touch on that a bit in this episode, but there's plenty here I didn't know about his career and how he approached leadership. There are some fascinating insights into dealing with the pressure and scrutiny that comes with leading the All Blacks. And there are quite a few similarities with Wales in that fact that it is a rugby mad country where results can often dictate the national mood. So it was nice to bond over that. He is a great guy, a great talker, and like I said, a legend of the game. Enjoy the episode with Kieran Reid. Kieran, great to see you again, mate. It's a little bit of a deep question. I'm going to go into it why, but you're obviously retired now and you've done so much, so much. But if someone looks at your career now or someone asks you, are you happy with your career now you've hung up the boots? What's your immediate thought? Oh, 100%. Yeah, man. It's, um, yeah, no regrets. Obviously, pretty lucky to be involved in a, in a pretty awesome era of the All Blacks, but also just the time and, and the mates I've made over that time has been fantastic. So, yeah, it's, uh, Definitely uh, one of positive positivity, eh, coming out of the career. I'm sure you'll, you'll be the same. Yeah, I say that because I was looking at some of your accolades. One of the most cap players of all time, 128 caps, is that right? Yep, yep. 128 caps for the All Blacks. Twice World Cup winner, a World Cup captain again in 2019, World Player of the Year in 2013, Super Rugby champion four times, which is your domestic league down south at the top level, seven times Tri-Nations or champ- Rugby Championship winner. And in 2020, you were in the Queen's Honours List, appointed officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Oh, flipping out, mate. You've, if rugby was a computer game, you completed it. <laughs> you literally completed it. <laughs> what is it like being a captain of New Zealand in such a, new, a rugby-mad country? And obviously yourself doing that during the World Cup as well, and you played in a home World Cup in 2011 as a player. What is that like? Can you explain that to somebody who probably doesn't know what rugby fever is like in New Zealand? Yeah, probably hard to explain in words, but most definitely it is a case of, you know, next to the Prime Minister in New Zealand is, is the most, uh, you know. <laughs> That's a cool right, way to put it. You know, in terms of, you know, the status of, of what it means and, and how much eyes are on you and how many people are looking at you and things like that. I didn't quite truly understand. Like, obviously, I was under Richie for eight years in my first eight years of my career so got to see what he went through and he was very I guess an insular man and you know I thought 
you know, you could maybe be a bit more of himself, but then as soon as you kind of get named the official captain, you realise that everyone's coming at you, you're carrying kind of the whole nation on your shoulders a little bit. So definitely figured out how much pressure and expectation and everything that gets dumped on you as, as the captain. And I'm sure you know too as well, you know, it um, can be all-encompassing, you know, <laughs> um, leading your country. So especially, you know, for a team like Wales or, or the All Blacks, it's, you know, the entire nation who support the team and, and want you guys to do well. So you become that face and you become that person who, who's out there doing it. Like I was definitely felt like I was ready. Like I, um, by 2016, I'd played 70 tests or something like that. So, you know, I was probably ready beforehand and I was lucky to captain the side about 10 or so times before I was named official captain. So had a little feel of it. But when you're caretaker, it's, it's not the same. You can take the responsibility and get rid of it, you know. So holding on to that kind of, you know, proper role of, of captain was... It did change your life in different ways. I didn't quite expect, you know, I didn't quite realise how heavy the weight was going to feel um, when I first took over. So our listeners will hear from captains from all sorts of sports and um, already heard from some, and they can be quite different, the sort of roles and responsibilities. So could you explain to us what would be the primary roles and responsibilities of a New Zealand rugby captain? As the captain, you are the link, the key link between the coaches and the players. I think that's one of your key responsibilities. It's to ensure that the alignment is really strong. You know, you're the the voice as well from the players to the coaches. So, ensuring that you can connect well across the board. You know, I think that's at any level. As a captain, it's it's important that you're connected to, you know, your your first year player, your your rookie is just coming in and. And your coach has been there for a wee while. So, you know, that's probably the, the key thing. I think also ensuring that as a captain, I utilise my team, you know, as a, it's not a captain by themselves. And in, in the rugby environment, it's definitely not that way. It's, it's ensuring that I utilise the experience and, and leaders alongside me, you know. Like I had some guys who were pretty damn good and captains of their own teams. And um, the thing I enjoyed about the captaincy was the ability to connect, the ability to get the best out of your players and get best out of your, your young men, I think, was the, was the key that I enjoyed. What were you like growing up and did you want to be a captain? Oh, I didn't really want to be a captain. No, growing up, I was pretty quiet. I was pretty reserved. I, I went to a you know a high school that wasn't a rugby school. You know, most schools in New Zealand have, you know, five, ten rugby teams, you know, lined up through the top <laughs> level, first 15 down, whereas I went to a school. It was a big school in South Auckland, had 2,000 kids, co-ed school, but... We scraped together one rugby team, you know, as a first 15 and, you know, we had to really struggle to get players to come along. And so for me, it wasn't really a case of I'm on this pathway. It was more a case of, hey, I love the game. And, yeah, I was a head boy at the school and first 15 captain in my last year, but we were a very small fish in a, in a pretty big uh, pretty big pond. So I was fortunate enough that I worked really hard, at, I guess, at that point and it instilled a lot of great values in me that I did manage to make a couple of New Zealand age group teams. But I kind of had this whole thing that I felt like I was didn't quite belong because I hadn't been to these camps, these age group camps that everyone else had gone to. I didn't go to the big schools. So I didn't have too many friends, I guess, when I first started. So, yeah, I was quiet. I was just watching. I was listening. I probably always had something in me that enjoyed that whole leadership thing. But at that time, I had no confidence in my ability to speak. So I watched. I listened. And through all those age groups, and I was able just to go out and play, I guess, a little bit and managed to... I guess you showcase a bit of talent and use my hard work to get to the point where coaches started tapping me on the shoulder to try and get me to do a bit more, which eventually came. But yeah, I was definitely not one growing up that 
felt I was going to be a, you know, a strong leader. I definitely didn't think I'd ever captain the All Blacks. There's no way, or well, no way, I thought I'd get up and speak in front of people so easily as what I do now. So it's um, yeah, it's a bit of a change, and that's kind of what rugby gives you. Eh? It's a pretty amazing thing. That's mad, and it's actually reassuring. So I was exactly the same, and a lot of guests that we've had have all said exactly the same thing. Most have come through quite quiet and yep. sort of unassuming people, but they just kind of get that role. I did actually in my when I was fourteen, um, my fourth form year, so year ten, I think it is in New Zealand, got a scholarship to go to a big school, St Kent's, and actually at the school at the time was Joe Rokothoko, Jerome Kaino. You know, these guys went on to play for the All Blacks. And so I went there for my year 10 year, but to be honest, it just didn't sit right with me. I didn't quite enjoy it. You know, it was a bit of a bus trip into Auckland. You know, it took me away from my mates and didn't quite enjoy it. So I went back to my school, Roswell College, and I guess my parents were like, oh, you know, this is the opportunity for you to try and make it in, in sport. You know, I was showing a little bit of talent, but I was like, no, nah, I'd prefer to enjoy my, my high school years and do it that way, which... You know, for a young guy, I look back and I go, man, that's a pretty big decision to make, To you know, to go your own way. And I, th I think, to be honest, it was the making of me in terms of how I operated. And, you know, I was really born from those values that, you know, my parents actually brought up in me when I was growing up, you know, and living in an area that you had to go out and take things. You couldn't be, you weren't given anything. It was about, you know, enjoying what you, you could do and doing it with your mates. So South Auckland, very multicultural area, the highest Polynesian population in the world is South Auckland. So, you know, Māori, Polynesians, everyone was involved. So you got used to hanging out and talking to, playing with all these different cultures, which is brilliant. I think it really helped me, you know, when you started captain in the All Blacks and, you know, you've got all these different um, cultures that you're leading and, and playing with. 2011 then. So you have a World Cup at home yep. and you're playing. And New Zealand hadn't won a World Cup for a while. Yep. And it was always well documented about there was famous knockouts against France, the knockout stages didn't quite win for yeah. quite a few World Cup cycles. What was that pressure like in 2011, having a home World Cup? You are outright the best team in the world, but haven't proved it in a World Cup for a few mm. years. What was that pressure like as a player in a home World Cup? Oh, the pressure was huge. <laughs> it was 100% it was huge. And, and you're exactly right, you know, like we're probably considered the best team in the world for those 24 years uh, between that first World Cup when we won it. But every time we turned up to a World Cup and, you know, we either got knocked out, we choked. And, and really, it probably came down to not our physical game, it was more our mental game, you know. Like, it just, things didn't click, you know. France got on a roll a couple of times. Like, you know, only four years earlier, we lost in the quarterfinal to France and then suddenly we're playing them uh, in a World Cup final again, you know. And so, yeah, the pressure was huge. But you wouldn't know in the World Cup, eh? Like, how, mate, it was crazy how much support there was around the, the country. <laughs> like, everywhere you go, you crazy. just could not... Like every, it was just like every letterbox was painted black in the entire country, just about <laughs> one. So, but like the thing we learned from those World Cups, well, finally they kept our coaches on post 07. So 2007 World Cup where we lost, kept the same coaches. So then the coaches could learn from those mistakes. Whereas I think every time they changed coaches and then they started new, oh, we don't need to learn from the past type of thing. Whereas finally they'd said, no, nah, let's learn from what these failures and, and use them to get better. And really it came down to our mental game, which was probably the, the crucial bit. So we worked a lot on pressure and how to deal with it. Um, we got like criminal psychologists in who frameworked a bit of, you know, what your brain does around how you handle pressure. How do you keep yourself in like a really calm state and don't get distracted so your intention's in the right way. And we did a lot of work on that probably from, yeah, in the last few years leading up to that World Cup. You know, everything that came or the expectation that was there, which was which was amazing and brilliant, we are just able to handle it probably a bit better than what we've done in the past. How did you practice that? Was that individually or was that as a group? 
Yeah, both. So definitely as a group, we've done a lot of collective breathing. As soon as you start thinking about breathing, you, you stop thinking about what's happened in the past or what's going to happen in the future, you know? So that's one tool that you can use. It's easy and it can use as a team situation or a huddle or something like that. Like every huddle now is guys will come to there and have a collective breath, you know, because it actually works. We did a lot of work around understanding what the brain does, visualization stuff, and then just really around one-on-one sessions with the guide to kind of create a bit of um, something that you could use, a physical tool that you could use on the field for when you, we call it in the red, so when you're in the red, so you're distracted, and when you need to get back in, we call it in the blue, so when you need to be back on task. So I had a little self-talk which I used as well. So if I knew I was a bit distracted, my attention wasn't on, I was thinking about my drop ball, whatever it was, or the scoreboard or something like that, you know, I'd talk to myself. So I'd just say, Kieran, next task. And that would just be going on in my head. And then that would work. If potentially that didn't work, I'd say it again. Or if I need to get a biggest perspective, another technique I used was looking to the far reaches of the stadium. So really what that did, it brought my eyes up. So generally when you're, you know, you're cluttered, your eyes are down, you're not taking in any information. So it brought my eyes up allowed me to see what was going on and then move on to whatever that next next task was or what a, whatever decision I need to make. And these things here, like once I got good at it, were happening really fast, you know, like that could only be a second or half a second in a break of play and suddenly you're back into a really clear mind. Um, whereas when you first start, you might get stuck in that loop of negativity or for a long time and you kind of can't get out of it. So it's all about practicing it at trainings at, um, and games and, and getting better and find your own thing, you know, like I know some guys squirted water on their face, some guys pushed their toes into the ground or it was just about something physical, I guess, a physical act that meant that you had to think about doing something different, which brings your mind out of that whole loop of what's been before or what's what's coming. I think that was the the crucial thing, probably the thing that really helped me through my whole career from that point on, you know, like, you know, just knowing how to deal with that pressure, the expectation, not doing well, but being able to maintain a clear, calm head and, and make great decisions. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a big part of it. There is a famous quote associated with New Zealand rugby, no dickheads. <laughs> Can you explain what that is all about? And is that true? And is that what you go by? Yeah, I guess it is, mate. It is 100%. You know, it's not necessarily spoken about at all. But, you know, it was a, probably the original quote was um, from Wayne Smith. You know, he's, he's a brilliant coach, just, yeah. you know, came in and turned our woman around to win the World Cup in six months, you know, amazing. But he came out, I think, when he was coaching the All Blacks and said, you know, better people make better All Blacks. And that's basically the mantra of it, you know, like, so it's the same as no dickheads. It's like, hey, you're here to fit in. It's the team first mentality, which is which is what it's all about. Yep, you can be an individual and be yourself, but hey, you've, you can't be a dick really. <laughs> and, that's, and that's essentially <laughs> it, you know, like, hey, you, you, you're here for the team. And so that's probably the, the main thing around it. And I think that works in, in anything, you know, like sport, rugby, um, business. Yeah, you definitely need it. It's so simple and I love it. And so many people have kind of abided by it. And it's so true. Like you've got, you can have good players, but if you have good people, you know, the machine kind of ticks along, you know, much more easily. Yep. You mentioned uh, how multicultural Auckland was and how the team can be very similar as well. People from different backgrounds. How easy or hard was it to bind those people together? Yeah, you've got to be purposeful in what you're doing there. You know, you can't expect every culture to feel a part of what, say the All Blacks is or whatever team you're involved in, you know, without actually welcoming them in. So it's allowing them to be a part of this team, which is, you know, for us, it was, could be as simply as, 
having some kind of Samoan nights. So you might have a night where you honor Samoan culture or, you know, the next week you have some Fijian food or things like that. So it's actually, hey, we respect your culture. We're bringing you in. We want to learn more about it. And so we did a lot of that in the team, you know, to improve our entire culture. It was, you know, to, to understand exactly what it means to each individual person in that group to be there. So, yes, examples like that. Even um, we had this thing called a club night where we'd put on our old school kind of club jerseys from our kind of first clubs that we'd played for, you know, and when we went there, there'd always be someone who would stand up and tell a bit about their club, you know. It was just like connecting that person to to what his club was, you know, maybe the All Blacks had potentially played there or titles the team had won. So it's just that, you know, and then suddenly that person feels really valued, feels like, yeah, this is part of who I am and I can be this person in a team like the All Blacks. You can still feel like you're can be yourself and, and your culture can is welcomed in, in the All Blacks culture. So, yeah, you definitely have to work on it. It doesn't just happen. So it's all, all just part of ensuring everyone can feel comfortable to be themselves. Say moving forwards a little bit, 2015 World Cup, you guys are champions. What was more pressure, trying to play and win a World Cup, and it would have all been your first World Cup win since I was 11, yeah. or trying to retain it in England? What was harder? Uh, 11 was harder, I, I believe. I think when you went to 15, we'd only lost four games in that four-year stretch between 11 and 15. Crazy. Like, it's just... Yeah. And, and so we legitimately had the best team in the world. We'd learned all these great lessons. We had a lot of guys who were going to go down as the best All Blacks in their positions ever. And a few of the guys as the best rugby players in the world ever. So, yeah, it was uh, a case of, hey, we've got this. It didn't mean that we ever took our foot off the throat but we just went in there a bit more confident and can maybe I don't know enjoy the World Cup a bit more being away from home as well from my perspective was brilliant because England's that big that when you're in a, in London or somewhere you, you could go places and, and people weren't kind of right out, over top of you as, as much as what it was you know back in New Zealand so we need to go out there and, and take this it wasn't a case of you know defending it was a case of going and winning it again but doing it with a, a squad and a team that was pretty you know, probably pretty damn good. And looking back, it's one of the best in ever to play the game, I think. Oh, without doubt. Without doubt, the best team I ever played against. In in those two World Cups, Richie McCall was your captain. And obviously, he's gone down in history as a very successful player and captain, one of the all-time greats. So, a twice World Cup winner. What made him so special as a captain? Yeah, look, I think for Rico, he had his absolute drive to succeed, you know, there's been nothing that would get in his way to get what he wanted to get. And I think that's what, you know, really, that's how he led. He led with his actions. He, he was going to go do whatever it took to get that turnover to make the time on, on his running sessions or whatever it was, you know. like, And so as players, you know, you watch him do that, man, there's no way you can, there's no outs for UA if your skipper's doing that. So I think that's what he, how he led brilliantly. With the totally different guys and personalities and where we grew up was different. So, but to witness that kind of, yeah, relentlessness and, and drive is, you know, you can kind of tell why, why you're so successful. You then take over the helm and it seemed like a very seamless transition from the outside. Yeah. Did you want to be captain? Yeah, I did, yeah. So that's 2016 I took over officially, yeah. As I said before, like I'd captain the side. Richard had been out about 10 times in that between 11 and 15. So I'd captain the side about yeah. 10 times um, in that period, you know, when he wasn't there. So, and to be honest, if I'm, if I'm brutally honest, like I, I was... 
wanting Rico to <laughs> to pass it over. I was like, mate, you can get out of here. I felt like it was my time, mate, you know, like, you know, and I was 30 when I took over captaincy, you know. How old were you, mate? Were you at... God, I was 22. I was 22. retired at 30. That yeah, makes you yeah, feel... Yeah, yeah God. So, that's crazy, yeah. So at that point, you probably feel very ready for it. So I definitely felt ready for it. And, you know, in some ways it was mm. brilliant because it meant that when I took over, I was... 100% myself. Like I didn't have to be anyone else. I was confident in how I led. I was confident in who I was, where I played and all that stuff. But I was ready, 100% ready. And I was just, you know, wanting to stamp my mark on this team. And and what also we we did after 2015 World Cup, like we lost like a thousand caps of <laughs> international caps mm. from our team, you know, like eight centurions um, retired. And so we brought this whole new crew in and it was for me as a captain in that era, it was, was brilliant. I, I really enjoyed that part of it because it was a case of me kind of going back to, I guess, what I was like a little bit at school. It was bringing people together and I think that's probably my strength as a captain was the connection and, you know, being able to connect with anyone on the team and, and to get the most out of them in the, in the best way possible. And I think it's a new wave. We had to do things differently but we don't have to give up, I guess. What were you like then as a captain pre-match? So, you know, there's a few times you could address your players. Obviously, there's throughout yep. the week and you mentioned mm. bringing the boys together. What were you like pre-match, whether it was pre-warm-up, pre-kick-off? Were you like heated as a captain? Were you quite calm and composed? How did you address the players? Yeah, I think I was probably calm and composed across the majority of it. Like I, um, you know, I probably learnt through that whole time as Rico's kind of, you know, vice captain, lieutenant for a long time because he was pretty calm and and he was able to see the big picture. I could be, as as a forward, you know, you have to be pretty heated and you got to get guys up for these mm. big games. So I was that guy in, under his leadership where I could point fingers at people and get a bit angry and, and yell and scream a bit more because it worked for us, you know. I could do that and Rico could be a bit more calmer and, and do that. So as I, as I took over the captaincy, I didn't want to keep doing that as much. Um so yeah, probably a bit more composed and, and calm and more about what we were going to do in the game. And as long as you've kind of built up a mindset, I think as you learn as a captain across the whole week, then by the time you get to the game, there's only maybe, there's, a, there's key points you've been touching on, isn't it? You know, those focuses that you need and just reassuring those points really. So this next question is quite a big one, um, but I had what I call like my leadership compass or yep. captaincy compass, and it was the four traits of what I thought was going to make the best captain for me. What would be on your leadership or, or captaincy compass as the four non-negotiables that you think are critical to make a good leader? The best thing as a leader is to be who you are, so it's, it's to understand who you are. So, you know, the, f the first one probably is to understand yourself, understand exactly who you are, then be who you are. So that's for the yeah. second one, like, don't try and be anyone else. If you try and do that, it's not authentic. It can't have any impact, you know. So probably another one is, as a captain, as a leader, is to ensure you build connection, understand okay. your people, your, your team. I, I feel that just, you know, when you've got to get something out of someone, the more you know that person, the more you're connected to them and, and they're connected to you, the more likely they're going to put in, the more likely they're going to listen and, and be prepared to do whatever it takes. So, yeah, that's probably the – and then I, I think as a fourth one, I, I, you know, if you're on the field, so if you're captain on the field, it's to play well. You know, you've got to be doing that. So you've got to have your actions um, to start well. So, you know, what I learned from the game over such a long period, it's like 
it kind of feels like I need to be passing on these different lessons that, that, we, that we've taken and it correlates to so much more than just sport, anything. So, yeah. You kind of don't realise until you reflect like what you've kind of gone through and you say things which you think are quite trivial, but to a lot of people, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realise you perceive things that way or you do things that way. So I, I agree with you. It's so important that you can try and give that back because you kind of take for granted your knowledge and it's not until you step outside of the world of rugby you think, oh, I've... I got a little bit I might be able to pass on here, actually. You know, you'd have a wealth of knowledge, wealth of knowledge. Yeah, 100%. And what about the hacker? I want to ask about the hacker because everyone up north will ask us, like, oh, what's it like to face the hacker? But I guess it's a much more rare question. Wow. What is it like when you're that guy at the front? Is that a sort of responsibility or privilege yep. that you enjoy as a captain? Like, what, yeah. what do you kind of think is more of a pressurised thing? Delivering that final speech before you go out mm. or, like, leading the hacker? Look, I think the first time I was at the front of a hucker, the front of a hucker, I was a bit more nervous than than anything else. I think the the speech before a game, like I think you'll realise that I you mm. used to prepare it. I used to get quotes or you know get things that you know like when you were younger and do all this. I'm shit. the same. I'm and laughing because like, I was the same. And you're like yeah. going, and then you, like you realise like it actually means nothing. You know, like <laughs> these guys are prepared for this game. Yeah. Just say what you need to say. Like back your your instincts around that. And if, if you don't need to say anything, don't say anything. You know, it was. Yeah. Plenty of cases where that happened. And kind of leading the huck is a different thing. It's it's kind of like the respect uh, you got to earn to be there and, and do that is huge. And so you realise, you know, what that means to your team and, and the team are kind of putting all their energy through you when you're in that kind of niho, which is the shark tooth, which is, you know, and I'm at the point of that. Okay. You know, in every marae in New Zealand, every kind of whare, there's, you'll see that image across the walls and things because it's just a powerful image in Māori um, culture and it's putting everyone in the same direction and so that's what the haka is and basically you're the guys emitting it all you know all that energy so it's it's pretty powerful it's pretty amazing to be there but I'll tell you there's you know a couple of stories where you you turn up and I think um, either in Argentina or South Africa and the crowd just chants out the haka so you know we've got our kaya so our caller so TJ Pedernaro someone who's calling when to start the actions and things like that and if you're at the front a couple of times I literally could not hear TJ. <laughs> yeah, I'd never thought of that. And so, actually, like, yeah. you, I'm trying to look real staunch to the opposition, but, like, I'm really <laughs> straining with my ears, to, like, trying to hear, like, because I can't hear him. And, you go, and you're just trying to get a feel for when you got to start the movement because you don't want to be that yeah, guy at the yeah. front kind of getting it wrong. But there's definitely a couple of occasions <laughs> where it was... Um, yeah, I was getting real nervous, kind of like just like leaning back, kind of going, trying to actually hear. <laughs> and I can't hear out of these ears. I never. I, I can't hear out of these I ears anyway. But that. you know, it's like um, <laughs> so that, on those ones, you're not worried about you know intimidation. You're just worried about kind of getting it done. You know, it's like um, <laughs> you know, and that's what the huck. Oh, huck is more about connecting with your your brothers and the team, and you know, it's brilliant when sides face it and show that respect of giving it something and, and being true to who they are you know it's cool I loved it no I, I do remember the, the third test against you boys for the Lions and you kind of just like whirl through your mind all these things of coming up as a kid playing when you're 11 your school then breaking through pro and then you suddenly think you're there like Lions yeah. for New Zealand Eden Park you boys in the hack and I was like Oh, this is pretty cool. I know, like, yeah. we, like you know, this is this is centre stage. Here. Yeah, how many yeah, times did you class. face the hacker, mate? You would have. Yeah, I, I played you boys nine times, yeah. and yeah, one win, which sort of shows how how tough it is. One win, one draw, seven yeah. losses, like you know. And but did so, yeah, you face the hacker? Did you change how you face the hacker over the time? Like, did you kind of when you first faced yeah. it, kind of like like 
What, what was that like? I used to take it real personal. I used to take it really personal. Like, I remember, because we had, obviously, Warren Gatlin, the Kiwi coach. Yeah. And I remember he was, like, asking us what we all felt. And I was like, man, I'm, like, eyeballing someone, like, telling him what, you know, like, I get him really angry. Like, but then, like, as, as t- that's when I was, like, young. I was a bit of a hothead when I was young. And then as you get older, like you say about, you, you need to be composed. Mm. Yeah, you need to reach a sort of certain level of aggression, of course, but you can't take it personal because then that's when you see like people kick off and they mm. do a high shot, they get caught offside. It's like, you can't get wrapped up in that, you know? So I kind of, when I realised what it was and like you say, it, you sort of explain it from a married perspective. I, I really enjoyed it and I just used to think, oh, this is brilliant. This is like what it's all about, you know? And I, I used to find it like a privilege to be able to say, I've sort of faced it, you know? And as time got on, I sort of kind of enjoyed it a bit more yeah what are some of the negative things that people don't see about being new zealand captain you'd know in some ways you know that as soon as you become captain you tend to take the whole team and and the performances on your own shoulders and so yeah being able to live with that was probably a really hard thing to do you know like so those first year or so when you're doing it you're taking it back to your hotel room you're just constantly thinking about what you team could do better what you could do better to help the team perform on the weekend so you're kind of losing that whole balance of why you love the game so that's kind of something that is just sort of part of what it is you know and so until you kind of realize hey it's a, you know that you can still do really well by keeping a, a strong balance side to structure in time you know when you're on tour to go out for dinner with a few of my mates and you know go down and play some cards just get out of my hotel room but more otherwise you know you just get stuck in a bit of a a loop of things that you can try and improve on so I guess that's one of it whether it's a negative I'm not sure but it's just it's a it's a tough thing with what you do you know New Zealanders as well as I'm sure you know they're passionate about and they expect us to do well you know so you know when things don't quite go so well that's when you are able to cop it and so it's probably more the fact that as the captain, you're more out there, you've got the ability to do that. Um, and for me, I can take it. You know, I don't, didn't never read the media, so it didn't worry me, but you knew when things weren't going well. So whereas your parents, your family, your, your wife and friends and stuff like that, you know, like they uh, still find a way to read it or their friends tell them what's <laughs> happening. You know, you, you get the same. It's so harsh on them. It, it's brutal, you know, so... That's a really hard thing. You know, What you can't really change it. You tell them, hey, look, don't read it, don't do this. But it is just, you know, the nature of, uh, you know, your families and things which, which struggle. I'm sure you've you've had the same. Eh? It's, it's hard. My mum and dad took it worse than me. I used to, like, think, oh, I, I'm like, dad, you need to chill out. I'm like, I'm just playing, a, it's just sport. And like, he'd read the press. Like you say, yeah. it kind of infiltrates. You yeah. try and keep it out. Mm. But your friends will text you. Like, you do everything, like you say, not to read the press. And your friends will say, oh, have you seen what that what that knobhead has said about you. I'm like, oh, well, I didn't, but now I know there's something <laughs> negative. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. But they do, they get affected. Parents and family yeah. get affected by what you go through, what you do so much. It's mad. What about on the field? Is there any anything on the field which you think, oh, I got that wrong or wish I could have done better? Or can you look back on your sort of captaincy reign really happy? Oh, man, there's definitely things across my time that you go, man, you, you change. But to be honest, no, like it's there's no regrets. It's it's past of the past now. I always kind of lived in that, that space anyway, you know, like you do what you do and that's, that's whatever happens out of it happens, you know. Sometimes you can have the best week in your life and, and turn up and, and still lose a game. It's just how it is. That's what sport is, eh? So, um, no, there's no regrets in anything. Say the 2017 Lions series for me, I kind of left that, you know, I, I was I flew back home and, you know, I was disappointed we didn't win. But everyone else back home seemed elated that we drew, which I always think is a little bit of a 
defeatist negative kind of mindset and even now to this day I'm like well yeah we didn't win though like you know if we won we would have you know beaten the best team in the world categorically like like straight we beaten them twice which we didn't but we I wanted to, to win at least 2-1 and how was that tour perceived in New Zealand was it perceived as a success or was it perceived as a missed opportunity oh 100% a missed opportunity yeah it was yeah in, in some ways you'd call it a a failure you know <laughs> like people would call it a failure and I which is kind of bizarre, you know, like, because it was a brilliant series and tight team. Both teams were bloody awesome at that stage, you know, like, but from the perspective from New Zealand and fans and everyone, and then also from us internally, yep, it was a, it was a loss. It felt like a loss. Yeah. But then you get over that, you know, like it was, you know, because you turn up, there's only one result you want. It's a, it's a win. It's, it's, um, that's what it, you know, dictates. That's what the jersey legacy dictates. And you don't get it. You feel like you haven't quite lived up to it. Um, at the time, I look back now and I've, we've caught up a few times, eh? And it's just a bizarre kind of moment, that third test. And But what the cool thing is, is that as a leader, you're kind of out there and you're doing it. And I actually got to share it with you. You know, it's, there's this personal connection that we've, we've got now that I don't know if that will ever happen again. You know, like that kind of iconic photo at the end of the game when all the teams are mixed up. And for everything that you do on the field, um, you get brought together as players and as people after it. Say that third test, and I put this in my book when I retired, like, oh, my God. And I'm normally, like, a pretty calm, composed guy. Always had, like, a massive amount of self-belief. But like going into that third test, my body was hanging on. Like, I was, I had seven parts of my body strapped up. And I was on the phone to my mum, like, I just found it unbearable, like, like the pressure. And I had a room on my own at this on this final week, so I just needed to get out get into my own space. I didn't want a room with people at times. I just wanted to, like, I'd be with the boys at training, at meal times in the team room, but then I needed time in the day to just be on my own and just kind of, it just, and the Lions, I built up the Lions, this massive thing And since I was 14 and I was desperate to be a test player for them. Never mind then going for a test aside against New Zealand. And obviously I went through it fine. Yeah. But I did have moments of self-doubt and I'm thinking, what am I, why am I thinking this? Because like I've never been like this my whole career. But I was on the phone with my mum back home and she was like talking me through this one evening I had like on a Monday mm. or Tuesday or something. I found the pressure and the expectation massive. What were you like going into that third test? Were you like quite calm and composed? And, you know, you're a few years my senior, so you've been through more than me, I guess, at this point. Or did you feel that massive amount of pressure being at home in New Zealand as well? Oh man, no, I definitely felt the pressure. I was... I was certainly nervous. Like, I think, you know, you, everything that had built up to this moment that suddenly this is all on for this one game and you're going, okay, it's similar to that World Cup final in, in, in all essence, you know, like it's the whole nation's expecting you to do well. Everything's saying, hey, you got to go win, but it's not a given, you know, like there's no way it was a given that we we're going to go and win the game. So it was a case of, man, didn't, when you just uncertainty, it just brings in a bit of nerves, bit of nervous energy. I think it was, brilliant you know it kind of you know set the whole scene so now I was I was certainly nervous and the best thing is as rugby players get on the field it kind of evaporates pretty quickly but yeah leading up to it as a leader you've got to be able to channel that into the right message and you know when you're projecting to the team deliver a certain way and then when you can get away you can you know show certain things as well so kind of why you play and it's kind of reminds you why you play and in the moment it's hard because you just kind of also focus but brilliant occasions to be a part of I quite like the way you said evaporates because it is so true and that's what I used to say to myself I'm like, and I was normally pretty chilled all the way through till a Saturday morning when I play all week I was fine 
But I usually think on like a Saturday morning when I was having breakfast, like, why do I feel like this? Because mm. whenever I'm in the dressing room and I've arrived at the stadium and I get my boots on and I'm going for warm up, like, I love it. Yeah. That's your comfort zone. I know I'm good. I, this is where I'm meant to be, type thing. It's like, so why do I feel like that? So when you say evaporates, this, I've never been nervous for a minute of a game yeah. when you're on the grass. You just, you're just playing. You're just doing. You're just doing it. You're just doing your thing. You're gonna work, you know. But strange how you feel like that beforehand. But oh, man. yeah, I just thought you boys must have been massive for you being at home. Oh man, yeah. I think too. That's the whole feeling. Like I, I just the people who have that feeling, I think, do well on the field. I was chilled too. I was a chill guy. But man, you got to game day, guts are turning around. Even though you're pretty chilled about what's gonna happen, you kind of just yeah, that whole yeah. your body knows. It's like you got to go. It's going to war, and it? it's putting your body on the line. You've just got to be prepared for that. So. It gets you in a good space, I think, and you can't discount it. You know, you just got to be able to have certain tools or in your toolbox to be able to keep yourself in a, a calm and clear mind so that they don't just overcome you and you play the game too early. Yeah, I, I always got that impression from you about being composed. Then we'll briefly talk about that penalty decision. So it's 78th minute, as I mentioned, deciding test, score is tied, and New Zealand get awarded a penalty to win the game and the series, but it gets reversed controversially. And I remember while we were waiting for that penalty, um, well, we were, you know, they went to the TMO, fourth officials, we were waiting to hear whether it was going to be a penalty kick for you boys, which we almost certainly would have kicked the three points and taken the lead and probably won the game, or whether it was going to be something else, which it turned out to be a scrum, luckily for us and unfortunately for New Zealand. But I, we were waiting, and I was like, it's like on a cliff edge, you know, and, and you could the, the stadium was waiting for this decision. And you just kind of like, I remember you just sort of nosed me and looked, you were like... This is pretty cool, eh? <laughs> we were like looking around. I was like, shit. I was like, I was so like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And you were just so like chilled, like just managed to take, which I really admire because when you're playing, people say, oh, try and take a step back and appreciate what you're doing. And I think, but you know, like you said, you, I've mentioned before, you've been through a lot. You were able to be sort of really composed that moment, take a step back and be like, look at what we're doing. Like, this is yeah. awesome, you know? Yeah. Like, is that what you're normally like in those sort of pressurised situations? Or is that something that you learned probably from all the way back in 2011 when you had that coach who came in to teach you how to be composed in situations? Oh, mate, certainly something I had to learn. Like, I didn't have that when I was younger. You know, you just, you learn through experience, you learn through practice. So those moments there that I was always kind of reasonably calm dude and pretty relaxed. But yeah, you, you get into a press situation being able to know how to handle it and how to bounce out of it through different tools that you've got is crucial. So I did get better at that across my career. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like, as you say, like in those moments, like there wasn't much we could do from once mm. the ref's looking at that. It was more a case of, okay, well, you know, perspective on what we're doing is pretty amazing. I just thought it was, a, you know, pretty epic kind of moment, you know, what was happening. So look, as I said, I think just being there and being able to compete but also, no, it's just it's more than that too, you know. And as leader, you're you're projecting what the team's doing, you know. So the calmer and and clear you can be, then you know your team's probably following you a bit a bit more that way. So the ref changed his mind. No penalty. Match is drawn, and the series is drawn. We do the shared trophy lift. Um, I actually remember asking you at the time. I'm not sure if you remember, because I remember thinking, oh, and I've always said this analogy uh, afterwards when people ask me how I feel about the draw. I say, well, nobody wants to share a gold medal at the World Cup or just wants to share a gold medal at the Olympics. Like, we've got to get a winner. I remember saying to you, if we could yeah. toss a coin and go for extra time, would you go for it? I and mean, when I say toss a coin, I mean toss a coin for kickoff, like captains do pre-match. Would you have still liked to have found a winner, or do you think it finished right having a draw? No, it would have been brilliant. To, I think I said it, you know, like, let's let's keep going. The crowd would have wanted it. Everyone would have wanted it. But, you know, it's, it's a unique moment. I think when the final whistle went from the, you know, from the ref, it was, it was such a... 
a weird thing, eh? You know, like it just felt hollow. Um, yeah, probably, you know, it was. it was like, what's going on? Is this, is this it? You know, like after such an epic battle, brutal kind of nature, and then suddenly it's done and it was, you know, it didn't really feel right, to be honest, like a draw. But I guess once you kind of get over that and you realize, okay, this is what it is, it's like, man, okay, we're both up on the stage. You know, let's get everyone together. And it's, I th- I'm not sure if it was you or me who said, look, let's bring the teams in and and make sure everyone's intertwined. And just an iconic moment, I guess, <laughs> in history, which is, um, as you say, at the at the time was just a really weird thing to happen. But you know, looking back, it's pretty awesome to be a part of. I think I think it was Jerome, wasn't it? He came over from your side and said, "Oh, lads, do you reckon, do you reckon we should get all the boys in?" Then we both straight away went, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm really." proud I think that I was part of that photo so it's one of the iconic sporting photos not just rugby like sporting photos so I think yeah if my memory serves me correctly it was Jerome Kano yeah, so yeah. I give you lads the credit for that yeah. I think the cool thing is rugby is rugby eh, because of that it's you know you can literally try and knock each other's head off in the game and then and then walk off the field arm in arm share that moment share a beer yeah. in the shed and talk about each other's family or whatever it is. So, yeah, that's the cool thing about rugby, which, as you say, might not happen um, across the board in, in all sports. A couple of years later, you're captain for New Zealand and you guys are obviously favourites to, to win the 2019 World Cup. And you talked about, like, learnings from 2007. That 2000... I, I went into that semi-final watching you boys play in England. I think everybody had you guys down as favourites. And England probably played... Uh, and some people said it's been the best game in their history ever. That that performance, yep. not not achievement, but that that performance. Yep. You know, when you look back on that World Cup, did you do anything differently to the two before? Like, what? How do you look back on that World Cup and what were the learnings from that? Uh, yeah, man, it's uh, you know, it's it's really hard, I guess, as as a captain, and and you know, it's um put so much into that four years, and you know, the Lions was there, and then two years later, you go into the World Cup, and you know, there's a ha- couple of us who are trying to get three in a row, you know, like, and so that was my goal. I wanted to win a three World Cups, you know, but I guess there's some, you know, innate kind of desire you need to have within a whole group. And 2011, there's guys out of 2007 who had lost. 2015, that's still, they knew the feeling from 2007. 2019, we had no one who had, who had lost a World Cup, you know, so yeah. there's like, so that, yeah. you know, whether that has one thing to do, it shouldn't, it shouldn't in sport. You never want to say you got to go for a loss to, to get a win, but, you know, you have that real innate kind of real desire across the board. But really, I think as a leader, it was just I'd learn to try and, you know, man, guys in that game, England were fantastic and we kind of just got hit, bang, got smacked in the nose. And, you know, in the past, we've been able to force our way out of it. And even up until two minutes ago, I still felt we had a chance, you know, like, you know, we're that type of team. But perhaps across, you know, we just couldn't quite figure it out on the field, which was the most disappointing thing, I guess, from my point of view, is that you're working so hard and the messages I was delivering and, and everything that was happening without quite getting the response from the team, whereas you'd potentially got it in the past. So, you know, that's the one thing you look back on. But, man, it was just one of those times that England, as you said, played this great game and, and we're just off and the fine margins of sport to take that it can uh, end that way. So, man, you, it's like all this effort into that to, to then lose the semi-final was just was heartbreaking. Losing the game kind of what the All Blacks are, it feels like you've lost the World Cup. But then I'm kind of, so all these emotions are going through, but I'm going, reminding myself, shit, I've got to speak to the cameraman straight away, you know, get interviewed, get our team into a huddle and talk to my team, you know, and and basically deliver a message of, hey, look, we've been winners for so long here. If we don't lose with the right dignity that we've shown when we've won, then everyone wants to look on us and, and wants us to show something like we're sore losers or something. So it's more a case of, hey, boys, head up, 
pay respects to England here. Look, this is the other better side today. It's not what we wanted, but this is this is the cards with doubt kind of thing. And, you know, there's tears around the, the huddle and, you know, I'd certainly have tears as soon as I got back to the shed, but, you know, it's um projecting who, who the team is. So tough day, man. Probably, yeah, definitely one of the hardest days, my hardest day as a as a captain. So finally, it's quite a, it's quite a big question. And like, to spare your blushes, and, and I would say it from my opinion, anyway, I think you have been one of the all-time great players certainly in, in the modern day. And when people ever said to me, you know, who are the best number eights in the world? It's just bang. What do you want your legacy to be and what do you want to leave behind? Um, thanks, Sam. Like, honestly, that does mean, that means a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Um, man, my legacy, it's not up to me for, for my legacy to be dictated from what I, I reckon. Look, I, I honestly, I'd be happy if it isn't rugby, you know? It isn't about all those things that I've done on rugby pitch. Maybe it's more around leadership. Maybe it's, you know, it's just been a great dad. I, I, my legacy of my family is probably more important to me than what I've done on the rugby field. So, yeah, who knows, mate? There's still more to come, but like I, I always say it's just been a brilliant ride to be a part of in, in the rugby scene, and I've just enjoyed every moment of it. And so... You know, whatever is to come, I'll, I'll keep enjoying. Love that, mate. And I think I've always thought, you know, humility is such an important trait for a leader and, and it beams through with yourself. I think that's the fact that you said about being authentic and be who you are. And your humility, I think, is what makes you such a great leader with with your performances on the field. So, mate, really appreciate your time because really admired what you've done as a player and as a captain over the years. It's a genuine privilege to have one of your shirts in my house, you know, yeah. which, which I'll cherish and, you know, a special moment that we shared together. So, thanks for coming on, mate. Absolute legend of a player. Legend of a bloke, more importantly as well. And, um, yeah, see you soon, no doubt. No worries, mate. Thank you very much. Yeah, excited to see what unfolds in this, mate. Looking forward to listening to a few of them. <laughs> nice one. Cheers, Kieran. Cheers. Thanks again to Kieran. Really is one of the good guys and always nice to catch up. So many great takeaways from that chat. I thought his techniques of dealing with pressure in stressful situations was really interesting. Using those physical tools like collective breathing, self-talk, and focusing on a point in the distance, really fascinating to hear how he used those physical traits to help control his mental state. The way he spoke about understanding and respecting other cultures and other people's values I think is so important and that shone through in the way he led New Zealand. And one thing I think we can all agree is if everyone used the no dickheads philosophy in our everyday lives, things might just be that little bit easier. If you've got any suggestions for captains you want me to get on the show, let me know. Email me at captainsandcrowdnetwork.co.uk or use the hashtag CaptainsPod on social media. Why not follow our page on LinkedIn as well? You can do that by searching for Captains with Sam Warburton. And make sure you subscribe to Crowd Sports Plus on Apple to join the huddle and receive bonus content and ad-free episodes. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Next week, my guest is one of the most well-respected names in football. He's won the European Cup as a player with Nottingham Forest. He captained Northern Ireland at the 1982 World Cup and after winning trophies in England and Scotland as a manager, led the Republic of Ireland to Euro 2016. It is, of course, Martin O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.